0: Well, good morning again, Leslie Avenue. Good morning. It's so good to see everyone here this morning, see a couple of visitors. We're glad you're here. We hope you will come back whenever you have the opportunity. So thank you. If you're watching remotely, whether you're a regular uh, person that watches with us or whether you are visiting to the stream, either live or later, well, thank you for joining us. We'd love to have you join us here in person. So far, at least, we still have plenty of room, and uh, you've got a lot of people here that love God and would love to get to know you. So please come join us here live down at Linsley Avenue. This morning, we're going to talk about the greatest of these, which we are told is love. We're going to look at a couple of uh, passages. We're going to look at Matthew five for one verse. We'll spend most of the time over in 1 Corinthians thirteen. So thanks to Thurl for reading that. So let's take a look here at love this morning in English we have only one word for any and all sorts of love regardless of the actual meaning somebody can say to someone they are very close to that I love you they can also say they love potato chips all with the same word hopefully they don't mean the same thing when they're talking about potato chips as opposed to loving another person so English is very confusing Especially when you talk about teenagers. Teenagers use that word for anything. Uh, but then again, some of us who are older may be guilty of that sometimes as well. So we only have really one word for love regardless of, regardless of the actual meaning. In the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, however, that's not correct. There's one word for love. It's called storge and with a, a different verb. These words are characteristic words of family love, family love. They're the words that describe the type of love for a parent, for a child, and a child for a parent. There's a love because of the built-in relationship that you have between parent and offspring. Plato had said, a Greek philosopher, that a child loves and is loved by those who brought him into the world, using that idea of a family type of love. These words describe family affection family affection. Uh, there's also the word philia, and this uh, this word and its verb form are often called the warmest Greek words for love. Uh, in the older times, before the time of the New Testament, several hundred years before, there had been a, a proper distinction in the Greek language between this, verb, this word for love and the one that comes next. By the time of the New Testament, they were relatively interchangeable, but that past meaning, that past difference in form and meaning, would have still been in the minds of people as they were using them. And so this word, these words, philia, describe real love and real affection. It's the word that describes the feeling you would have for your closest and nearest and truest friends. Think of a lifelong friend. Somebody that you may have known since like the second grade, or somebody you've known for 30 years. Someone that when you hear their name when they show up you feel good because this person is there for you and this person is someone that you will definitely want to be near for them it's this warm tender affection that you would have for someone and in many ways is the highest form of love this is how it's been described then you have a third word agape we've often heard of agape there's an adoption agency in town named agape And again, by the time of the New Testament, uh, phileo and agape were used relatively interchangeably, even in the New Testament itself. Three, four hundred years before hadn't really been the case. Uh, These words, the the agape form of the word, describes unconquerable benevolence and goodwill that simply cannot be put out, that cannot be put aside. Uh, In regard to a person with agape, it means that really no matter what the person does to us, No matter how we are treated, no matter the insults we may feel or injuries, we don't let bitterness come in. We don't let bitterness come in. And so you regard that other person, even if they've done wrong to you, with this goodwill that you cannot put out. You cannot put out. You never seek anything but the highest good for the other person. From that distinction that had existed several hundred years before the time of the New Testament, look at Matthew 5 for a moment. Jesus had said in Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies. They had been taught, the Greek Jewish people had been taught by the rabbis that you should love your neighbor, which is stated in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the rabbis had said, but hate your enemies. Hate the Samaritans, hate the Gentiles, hate the Romans, hate your enemies. Jesus said, no, not at all. In addition to loving your neighbors, love your enemies. Well, what does it mean by that? Well, The real import of that is it's not going to be the type of love that you would feel for that lifelong friend. When an enemy shows up, you're not going to have the warm regard of, oh, I've been looking for you for so long. Come here and let me give you a hug. You're not going to feel that way towards someone that's been burning down a village or something like that. But you're supposed to want good for that other person, even if they are considered an enemy. Think about it. We are told by Jesus to potentially give a glass of cold water to an enemy, if the enemy is hungry to feed them. You're not doing that when you hate the other person. But at the same time, let's face it, you may not cook your best meal that you would slave on for three days in order to feed that enemy either. So in this way, right, it's a different kind of love than that close feeling you would have for your lifelong friend towards your best friend or friends that you might have today. What's the real difference? If you've known somebody for, you know, 30 years or you really had that close connection, it's almost like you can't help feeling that way toward the other person. Through shared experience, through shared trouble, through shared grief and pain, as well as being there for each other, you really truly can't help feeling that way. You really not want to feel that way toward an enemy, but you can choose to love the enemy. You can make sure that you are doing good for those who persecute you. That you were doing good for those who might hate you, that you were seeking their best and showing goodwill toward them. In the enemies, it's something, as I say, that you have to have sort of a victory over what might come naturally to you. Love your enemies. Not quite the same as loving your friends, loving your family, but to love your enemies. More important still is love. Let's look over in 1 Corinthians 13 4 through 7. We'll be there the rest of the time. Love is going to remain long after everything else is gone. After this world is gone, after everything in the here and now has disappeared, we are told love is still going to remain. In part because we are told God is love. And when everything goes back, if you will, to oneness with God, that love is going to be that one thing that remains. And so love is certainly going to be the most important thing because it's going to be the last thing. The only thing that remains we are told when we're looking at first Corinthians 13 4 through 7 that love is kind one of the early christian writers writing about 200 a.d said that this meant that love is sweet to all sweet to everyone now as we go through these i want you to ask yourself does this describe me am i sweet to all am i sweet to everyone am i kind to everyone I'll tell you right now, I suspect none of us are going to answer yes probably to all of these statements, maybe any of them. I mean, time for confession. I freely admit I'm certainly probably not sweet to everybody. So it needs to be a reminder of how we should live our lives, how we should behave, even if it doesn't describe the way we may have been behaving. Love is sweet to all. Love is patient. Starting out here with two hard ones. Two hard Be sweet to everyone and to be patient with everyone. The Greek word here always describes patience with people. I think that's important. The patience here is with people, not necessarily with circumstances. Right? Circumstances are things that are going to happen to us, but the people in our lives, whether friends, enemies, or people we don't know very well, that's who we should have patience in dealing with. And one of the really important reasons for doing that is because I certainly would appreciate people being patient with me. So, am I patient with other people? Am I patient with other people? Early Christian preacher about 400 AD, Chrysostom said this is the word used of the individual who is wronged and who easily has the power to seek revenge but won't do it. Somebody did me wrong, and I could get back at them. I really could, especially if I thought about it. I could get back at them, but I'm just not going to do it. I will be patient rather than seeking revenge and exacting something back when I have been treated improperly. It describes the person who is slow to anger, and look at this. This word for patient is a word used to describe how God deals with us. I want God to be patient with me and part of becoming like God is to treat other people the way God treats me you know it's the way God treats me is my example if you will for how I should treat other people if God is patient with me how can I not be patient with others love is never jealous it's been said that there's really only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are millionaires and those who would like to be. I guess you could say that in anyway, right? There are those that like ice cream and those that don't. But in this case, those who are millionaires or have lots of money and those that would like to have lots of money. There's also two kinds of envy and jealousy. One wants the possessions of other people. You know, you have this great looking car and mine is a piece of junk. You have that nice coat, and I don't have a coat. Whatever it is, I want what you have. It's very difficult to avoid because it's a fairly common human failing when you don't have something to want what somebody else has. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it's very common. But the other kind of envy and jealousy is in many ways worse. It doesn't just want what you may have for your, you know, for me to want what you have for me but it really sets it up that it wishes you didn't have it at all it's not that I want a coat for myself like your coat it's a more of a anger and hatred, anger at the other person for how dare they have something I don't have so love in this case is never jealous it's never envious of what someone else has such that you would not want them to have it or perhaps even worst of all feel like taking it from love is not boastful love is not boastful Uh, there's a self-effacing quality in love there's this recognition that when love is present we are not worthy of that love we are not worthy of that love some people give their uh, love to other people almost with the idea that they're giving a favor doing you a favor uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, perhaps every single line of dialogue in the Star Wars movies But there's one where in a, in a moment of, of pain or problems, Princess Leia Tells Han Solo, I love you Can you picture that? Can you picture if you're familiar enough with Star Wars? She says I love you. But what does Han Solo say? I know he doesn't say, thank you, or I love you back. He's like, of course you do, right? That is the I'm fully, the, when I think of someone giving a favor by loving someone else, I'm sad to say, I think of Han Solo. I love you. Oh, well, of course. You know, or if I love you, I'm doing you a favor by stooping down to love you, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Someone who's truly in love should always be amazed that somebody could love them. How on earth could somebody love me? How on earth is it possible that given all of my faults, given all of the problems that I have, given who I am, that this person could possibly love me? And if you think about that between two people, think about it vertically as well. How on earth could God love me? given all of the the things I have done, given all of the problems that I continue to have, but it does, it does. So love is not boastful, it's humble, in the recognition that I do not deserve the love that I have certainly don't deserve it from God. It's kept humble by the consciousness that there's no way you can ever repay this love. You can't, if somebody loves you, you're not going to somehow repay it by buying a nice present, buying a bigger state or whatever. You cannot repay love because love is a gift that is freely given. You can't do it. Uh, love is not boastful or inflated with its own importance. This is a quote from Napoleon. Napoleon always advocated the importance, the sanctity of home, and the obligation of public worship for other people. For other people of himself. He said I'm not a man like other men. The laws of morality do not apply to me Guess what? He's dead So whatever thoughts he had of being special turned out not to be because he turned out to be mortal and a living person just like all the rest of us well The really great person never thinks of the importance of himself you know, when you're talking about love, in so many ways, the opposite of love is selfishness. Right? Because all these qualities we've been talking about, if I'm not kind, it's probably because I'm thinking of myself. If I am boastful, it's because I'm thinking of myself. <laughs> if I'm not patient, it's because whatever you are doing or have done to me is bothering me and interrupting me. All of these qualities describing love is really aiming at the, being the opposite of selfish. Because to experience love, you cannot do that and think of self. You just can't. And so the really great person never thinks of those three most important people in the world. Remember I've mentioned this before, my three most important people, favorite people, me, myself, and I. You know if you're talking about me you're talking about i you're talking about yourself over and over and over again out of your own words what's important is coming out love and selfishness don't mix they're like right water. and so a little quote here from dickinson man dressed in what little brief authority they had would certainly be a very sorry sight when we think of how important we are It's terrible because this too is going to pass away. Love is not rude. Uh, It's kind of interesting that in the original language of Greek, the words for grace and for charm are the same words. Being rude is again an expression of selfishness. Because I don't care about you and I don't care about the circumstances we're in. I'm going to be rude. Love is not, look at it, it's spelled out right here. It's not selfish. It does not insist on its own rights. In this world, there's only two kind, kinds of people. Those that always insist on their privileges and always remember their responsibilities and those who are always thinking of what life owes them. And those who never forget what they owe in life. Right? Two different varieties here. Some people insist on their privileges, but some remember their responsibilities. Some people think of what I am owed, and some people would never forget what they owe to other people. Those who love, and those who are selfish. Those who love, and those who are selfish. Most of the problems around us would disappear, certainly be a lot less big. They would be smaller. If we would think less of what I want, what we want if you would think less of what you want and more of what other people need really truly sin is essentially selfishness it really is because it's doing what I want to do without regard to what somebody else wants or certainly what God wants it's tough to love If you've got sin or selfishness making up a big part of who we are, love is not quick-tempered. And really, in reality, here it means you don't become exasperated with people. You don't lose patience with people and boil over. Right? It's the idea of a pot. You ever boil water and the water's boiling and you turn your back and all of a sudden, whoosh. Well, maybe I shouldn't cook what I would actually do. But that seems to happen sometimes when I'm trying to boil water. It's a snap and losing your temper, quick temper. When we lose our tempers, we lose it all because we are not in control of ourselves. Love does not keep accounts. This one's tough. All you need to do to have a problem with this one and have to struggle with this one is to get married because or be in a relationship for a long period of time. Because when you're close to somebody, you're going to do things that generate irritation or cause a problem, something the other person doesn't like. It can happen with friends, too. And when somebody does something to me, okay, you know, I really didn't like that. You fought your book. 4 p.m. Monday. Did this to me. I will remember. And then later on, when the time comes, oh, by the way, remember? You did this to me. Therefore, I get to be mean or ugly to you. Love does not keep accounts. It's an accounting word where you write something down as in a record. You keep books. You make a list. Love's not supposed to be that way. Not supposed to be that way. But it's what so many of us do. It's what so many of us do. One of the great arts in life, one of the great accomplishments in life, one of the things we should seek to become a master of is to learn to. They tell you, don't bring up anything if it's over a month old or whatever. I've heard that before. Maybe we just need to have the tape in our minds, whatever, right? Erase periodically. That does something to me. Well, I'm going to remember that every time. Hey, remember that time? Why would I do that? Why do I keep accounts? Because I was the one who felt wrong. I was the one who was taking advantage of it. I want to make sure you don't forget. What's the root problem? It's the problem we're talking about. Love and selfishness do not mix. Can't have both. Can't have both. Love rejoices in the truth. You know, there are times you definitely want the truth to prevail, to overcome, to be victorious. And there are times it's the last thing you want to hear. No, many times I don't want to hear what I'm really like. I don't want to know what causes trouble in others. Don't tell me the truth. I don't want to hear about it. But love should rejoice in the truth. It has nothing to conceal. When you're talking about loving someone, you're talking about being an open book where you're not hiding something. Love also finds no pleasure in evil. You might say that it finds no pleasure in anything that is wrong. Love is always supportive. It can also translate and mean love covers everything. Love does not keep shining a bright light on that one spot that the person really doesn't want to be reminded of all the time. The idea of keeping account again. Love covers everything, it ignores, it forgets the things that they cause pain and problems. and focuses on being supportive. You know, it would rather simply push things to the side than publicly pointing them out for other people. See, be supportive, be supportive. Love is completely supportive, trusting, and loyal. They have a twofold aspects. In relationship to God and God's love for us, it means that we can take God at his word in every promise that begins, whosoever, and there's a lot of those in the Bible. Whenever you see whosoever, we can say to ourselves, that means me. All these qualities, love is kind, love is patient, love is all these different things, applies in terms of God's relationship to me. In relationship to our neighbors. It means that love always believes the best about other people. And, and that's not what we often do as, as humans, as, as people. We want, wow, that has to be. If there's two possible interpretations, I try to tell people this sometimes. Some people seem to want to assume anger or malice or evil and what happened to them. I can easily explain that many times by just plain ignorance. Somebody didn't think about something before they did it. Rather than doing it on purpose to cause trouble. If we are supportive, if we are trusting, if we are loyal, think the best other people don't assume that something happened somebody did something to you because they were trying to do it on purpose because that's rarely true that's rarely true love never ceases to hope jesus believed that no man no woman was hopeless neither should we there is always a chance to make things right and to come back to god as long as we're breathing when all the things that people glory in have passed away, when all the riches, all the popularity, all the whatever that's so important to so much of society today, when it's all gone away, love's still going to be there. One of the most beautiful poetic statements in all of the Bible actually comes from Song of Solomon. It says, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown. Them. If love is a fire, if love is a flame, waters can't put it out. We just had some floods again in town, right? Any fires that were going on wherever the water's came, got put out. Usually, I mean, what if firemen put onto something, right? They spray water. Solomon here said, waters can't really put out love. If love is burning, nothing can extinguish it. The one thing that cannot be conquered is love. If you have it, if you're not thinking of yourself, and if you're not thinking of, selfish we then read at the end of this chapter for now faith hope and love abide of these three the greatest of them is love greatest of them is love greatest faith and uh, hope are love is still greater love is by far the most important I can have hope and still be selfish I can have faith and still be selfish it's very difficult I might even say really impossible have love and still be selfish. I kid myself. I can pretend I have love, but if I'm thinking of myself, I really don't have it. I really don't. How do you treat somebody with love? How do you treat somebody you love? It should be with kindness. It should be with patience. All these qualities we've just been talking about. How did God treat us, given that he loves us? 316. God loved the world so much when we say God loved the world, he's talking about the great mass of all of us who did what we wanted to do even when we knew we shouldn't. Every single one of us is a sinner. The only difference perhaps between some of us is some of us have recognized that sin and
1: have come back to
0: God in order to have that sin washed away. God loved the world, the sinners, the world so much that he gave his only son mm-hmm. so that everyone who believes in him may not die but have eternal life. God didn't have to do that. But he loved us so much, he allowed his son to die to pay the price for all the mistakes that I had ever done. And it really didn't matter whether the world was sin whether it was only me, if I'd been the only one to ever do what I wanted to do, God would still have sent Jesus to die so that Gene Wright might live. I don't know why he would want to do that. I really don't. But he did. God loved us so much, he gave us all his only son. Do we love God enough to live for him? And that's my question of the morning love God, about will we live our lives for Him? Showing love for God and love for our neighbors in things that we do daily? the The choice of whether to do that is yours today as we stand.